Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we'll be talking about humor. So I think it would be cool if we started out by talking about our senses of humor. Yeah. So do you want to talk about how we approach humor or how you think about my sense of humor? The thing that I love about your sense of humor is that you revel in the absurd. And we talked about this a little bit on the play episode, um, but didn't talk about it in too much detail. But every time I've seen you do stand up and then all the time we spend together socially, I love that you like to tie together the mundane to the absurd. Like that is my favorite thing about your sense of humor. And I also like that your humor is up for anything. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit in the failure episode, too. It's like you're willing for jokes to fail or you're willing to revel in the flatness of them when the humor is lost on your audience but is still totally funny to you. That I find really charming and endearing and delightful, actually. Um, and I think probably because you're younger than me, you're at a different life stage. I feel like you revel in the awkwardness of being a 20-something, like in all of its weird sociality and 20-something sex and, you know, 20-something miscommunication in a way that I find also all the time unexpectedly charming, just lovely. I like that you do the absurdist humor a lot because I it's especially here in the South it's so disruptive socially <laughs> which I just I you know obviously I love I take tons of pleasure in disrupting normative you know southern everything culture really and I feel like you go immediately to the awkward place and just camp out there and create some chaos which I like a lot I like that you said that because I think your sense of humor is also really disruptive, but you do a really good job of like calling out situations that are, you don't create absurdity, but you like find where it exists. You call it out in a really perceptive way. And I really like that. If there's like a conversation going or there's like a certain topic, you like have a really good perception of different perspectives, you know, and you can like flip a perspective very quickly, which can be really fun and funny. There's a, like a little opener you do sometimes where you're like, I don't know. And then you'll say the other perspective (laughs) (laughs) and then everyone's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. There's like another side of this that we've like been ignoring this whole time. And it's really, it's really funny, but also like really eye opening and I think it's a really good lead in to how humor can be, how it can be very instructive and how it can like help change your perception. And you are so good at using humor to like communicate ideas as a instructive moment or teaching opportunity or just like a shutdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's never mean. It's always, you do it in a really like lighthearted, joyful way because The truth of the matter is everyone has a a limited perspective and that's the reality. Everyone is like inside their own heads. Everyone has different priorities and different perceptions and different realities. The role of humor is to 
kind of demonstrate that to yeah. like poke fun. I that. mean, I I totally use humor as a pedagogical device, not exclusively, but I would say that as an adult person, probably because I was a debater. Um, I found that as a niche very early on. And I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. When I was in college, I wrote, like, the only fan letters I ever wrote were to Marv Levy, who was the head coach of the Buffalo Bills, who you may or may not recall lost four Super Bowl championships. And um, <laughs> I got, they wanted $60 for his autograph. I was in eighth grade. I was not, I was not well with it. And then I wrote to Bill Maher. Um, when I was in college, because I really thought that that the place for my um, sort of brand of observation was in political humor. And at that time, I thought Bill Maher was without a doubt doing the best political humor in the country. And so for me, I think you're right that that um, I use humor to point to other perspectives and flaws and arguments and to shut down conversations but also i feel like it became an outlet for my rage as a young person who just seen so much violence and excess and inequality and i needed to have a more productive way <laughs> to turn that rage into something that could be generative and i think that that's why i don't have a lot of patience now for people who rage at me when i'm trying to talk about politics because I feel like that, that kind of effusive anger, it's the language of the unheard, but it doesn't build any bridges whatsoever. It's entirely consumatory. Where I feel like humor has the potential to smooth across the edges and create points of contact that can be productive. Even when I'm shutting people down, I feel like, like you said, I'm trying to do it in a way that is not as shitty as it really could be. <laughs> you know? Right. Like we can all laugh about how limited our perspectives are we can all laugh at how much we screw up all the time and say the wrong thing and you know and even mm -hmm. when our intent is good don't communicate what we mean to i feel like humor is a good way to sort of overcome those everyday communication barriers and i think it also speaks not just to style but of goals you know my my goal is almost always to as you said show a different side of an idea do you think about goals when you produce your stand-up scripts? I would say most of my jokes relate to neuroses that people have mm -hmm. or that I have or like anxiety. <laughs> um, and so for me, actually, a lot of the goal of comedy is like, a, it's like a therapeutic thing where I am somehow coping with how like oppressive the expectations are and I have jokes about feeling useless or I have jokes about working too much and I like cope with how oppressive those things are to my sense of self <laughs> and my well-being etc and I cope with it in a particular way on stage and I actually like part of the way I deliver jokes is like showing how affected I am by working so much, you know, I like exhibit a sense of ex exhaustion or frustration and those things aren't direct parts of the jokes. I don't like directly mention them, but it's a big part of how you deliver an entire bit. So my goal kind of is to like work through problems that I have and do it in a way where I can like step back 
and not take those things so seriously and realize that it's all really temporary and that I'm also a very insignificant person. I don't know. It helps me have a sense of scale for things. Yeah, totally. It makes me realize that, you know, I like spend a lot of time thinking about myself and that is ridiculous. So part of humor to me or the way that I perform it and do it and write it and enjoy humor, it's a therapeutic kind of thing. But also it helps me have a sense of scale. Yeah. It really does. And also when you laugh with other, with other people, when you like find a point of relation with someone else, it's like a huge sense of empathy. So also I use it as like a point of relation. A lot of times when I'm writing jokes, I become like vulnerable in a particular way. And it's like something really relatable. My favorite feedback from people after I do a joke is, oh, I really like this bit. And then they'll say something about how they relate to the joke. Mm, yeah. And that's my favorite thing. I'm yeah. like, yes, yes. That's exactly what I was talking about. And also it adds to, you know, I can like, there's more material for me to draw from. And then a point of relation also. Like humor can be a bridge for some people. Yeah, I think for me, you know, because I camp out on the... And the image of the killjoy, the feminist killjoy, is so hard. Um, especially in the last couple of years, I've just really seen that as my role, personally and professionally, as an academic, but also as somebody who does political work. I feel like the goal of my humor is always to provide a different mode of transmitting knowledge um about inequality and so for me i think it's interesting now i hadn't really opened up my facebook page to my colleagues until about two years ago because i had a big i did a big talk and it garnered a ton of conversation and attention and then i got a bunch of friend requests from people in the field and until then they had no real sense of like me i don't think as a voice but I feel like now it's extremely clear to me that one of the ways that I'm understood as a voice in the field, whether it's my professional field or in the field of politics, is through the vector of humor. <laughs> and the way that I, especially as a woman, use humor to harness power in ways that can create moments of transformation. And for me, that's really very powerful. And I don't especially in the academy, there's so few people that have charisma or, you know, that play in risky rhetorical spaces. I think it's sort of, um, I'm an outlier very clearly. Like the fact that I'm joyful and playful <laughs> and engaged and a little reckless. And, you know, I mean, I just take a lot of rhetorical risks and you don't see that in women in the academy very frequently. You certainly don't see it in young women. And I think that it creates a different kind of power dynamic that allows me to say things that need to be said and for people to actually hear them, you know, the way that I intend them to say, you know, that I, the way that I intend them to hear. So I don't know. I, when I think about goals and style, though, I think about the people that have sort of informed my humor. Do you have like a Mount Rushmore of comedians you know, that have informed your style or your sense of what is funny? 
different generations have different experiences. And, like, comedy has always been, like, a mainstay in major entertainment. So, like, for a certain generation, like Johnny Carson, I mean, there were, like, very few channels. And so, like, so many people watched the same, oh, yeah. you know, like, programs. And it was, like, a staple. And now there's, like, so much diversity. I had so many, like, different streams of information as a young kid. There are not mainstays in the way that, like, there most been, yeah. popular comedians have major influences. My first real joy, real connection with comedy was through Douglas Adams, like, reading The Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and his style of humor, which is very absurd, <laughs> and kind of informs my sense of absurdity now. And also how much gravity he places in his comedy, a lot of it centers around the vastness of the universe and how ridiculous that is and how hard it is to cope with. Mm-hmm. And he'll just make like a quick joke, you know, like the, what's the meaning of life? And he just like gives it an arbitrary number 42. Yeah. And that's very funny because it kind of pokes fun at just like how vast that question is and how terrifying it is. And he just like gives it a simple numerical value. Numerical and then value. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's very funny, and I think I I still idealize that kind of treatment of huge problems or questions or anxieties. I really appreciate the ability to treat those with just like a very quick sense of humor. And also I think if you're doing a, a Mount Rushmore, you have to think about like personal relationships that you have that inform your sense of humor, mm-hmm. like best friendships and like inside jokes. What... What do you think are your influences? So political humor is clearly a place where I have camped out. And beyond Bill Maher, whose sexism I find tiresome. <laughs> I mean, there are things that he says that I find tiresome now that it's been 20 years that I've been listening to his shtick. But I like the way that he thinks about the relationship between humor and politics, even if I don't agree with him all the time. I mean, I loved as a kid Richard Pryor, even though I wasn't really allowed to listen to him. There were no black men allowed in my house, really, except for Michael Jackson and LeVar Burton. Um, I love Dave Chappelle. I think he is probably the, the most brilliant sketch comedian of my generation, certainly. Genius. That dude is a genius. And he's from Ohio, which I like. When I lived in D.C., his mom uh, teaches in the D.C. public schools, and so he would just show up at open mic night and just, like, roll up on this stage and try new material out. He's like always in town when he was visiting her, just rolling up on the set and doing the comedy scene when I when I was younger and in DC. I think Louis Black, I like his aesthetic, the pointing and the rage. And um, I've seen him a bunch of times live and met him, met him as parents. I like I like his sensibility about the relationship between rage and humor. He was super super transformative. And I think right now the smartest, I think the smartest political comedian working right now is Samantha Bee, hands down. But I also like dry humor. And so as a kid, I would say probably some of my big influences were Don Rickles and B. Arthur, who I, I love both of them, like just to pieces. I think I learned a lot about um, how to use your body and your voice to project absurdity. I have two favorite comedic moments that I found really useful. One was B. Arthur's Comedy Central roast of Pam Anderson. Her She reads from Pam Anderson's memoir, this, this ridiculous sex scene between Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee. It's basically the funniest thing ever. 
Um, and then, <laughs> and I love it. And I love, um, there's a, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Go to the YouTube. And I love for physical comedy, the, um, Chippendales audition skit with Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze, which is also I mean, way out of my wheelhouse. Physical, physical humor is like so not my thing, but I, I just deeply, um, deeply pleasing. I find that sketch. And then for political humor, watching um, Stephen Colbert roast George W. Bush at the cor- at the correspondence dinner in D.C. restores my faith in like the fourth estate and <laughs> just like how brave it's got to be to stand up in front of like this proto-fascist and just tear his ass out. Like Colbert has a very different kind of man energy. Um, and critique of man energy than one that I could perform or choose to. But, I mean, that just slayed. It was so brutal. It's exactly in the center of my wheelhouse about the way that I imagine humor operating. So, like, there are, all of those spaces are, are places where I find deep connection with the humorist. Not all of them are necessarily kinds of humor that I can pull off, but I find them to be resonant in a way that's very important for me thinking about how humor functions in public. I'm always constantly amazed that we're still having the conversation about whether or not women can be funny. And I find, I think Hollywood is doing a much better job, mostly Judd Apatow, oddly enough. But his collaborations with Melissa McCarthy have been fantastic. Really great. Great humor. Um, And thinking about genre. I mean, I think that especially because there's so much ridiculous commentary about her size or her weight or whatever. I think that she uses that so well to push back against genre constraints for women. And it's, it's really brilliant to behold, whether it's like the spy genre or the wedding film or the gal pal movie. I think she's just killing it. And I'm not saying it's particularly politically humorous, but in terms of thinking about the expectations around women and bodies, she is doing a hell of a job. And so is Amy Schumer. I also disagree with her a bunch. You know, like she makes some racial jokes I wouldn't necessarily make. But I think you would be hard-pressed to find a more feminist TV show ever in the history of television than inside Amy Schumer. I think we're living in a very interesting, you know, moment for humor as far as women comics go. Do you feel like there's a diff- different kind of pressure on you as a female comedian or the expectations are different? I feel like people kind of expect you as a woman to be, they expect certain things. Like if you're a, like a lady comic, it's not just that you're good at telling jokes. It's like you also have to be attractive, like easy to look at. But you can't be too attractive. You can't be riding on your physical appearance. There are all of these different things that you have to manage mm-hmm. along with being a joke teller. I, When I first started out here in Fayetteville, I feel like people were less... They were less accommodating to my like early attempts at doing comedy. Like, I remember the first time I signed up to do stand-up in Fayetteville, which was like almost three years ago, the person who was running the open mic night looked at me. He saw me sign up and he was like, okay, um, I haven't seen you before. It's a five minute set. 
but anytime you want to get off stage, if it seems like people aren't laughing, just get off stage. <laughs> he just expected me to not be funny at first sight. Oh, vagina <laughs> must not be funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know, like, a lot of the people who start out comedy, like, don't have a lot of experience and they're not funny, but I can't imagine that he said the same thing to, like, some of the dudes that Handsome were dude bro. coming in. <laughs> yeah, for the first time. I don't know if the expectations are totally different. I don't really read them. You know, I kind of just, like, continue on with this little information about other people's thoughts as possible. <laughs> yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about all of the different levels of humor. And I was thinking about how humor can be transformative or it can be critical or it can be political, but also how humor can just be like real dumb <laughs> or about something yeah. like nonsensical. That's where I was going to go. I was going to talk about comedians that I hate. Like I hate Adam Sandler. Viscerally, I cannot watch him. I, 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 on some level, I appreciate his portrayal of infantilized masculinity, like the learned helplessness of masculinity. There is value, I think, in that kind of portrayal. I just find it repulsive. <laughs> so I feel like there are comedians that I just like, I cannot, will not engage with. I just, I like physically cannot do it. Do you have comedians that you just like, loathe like cannot engage with i feel kind of stupid about this but i really think most people are funny i have like such a low threshold threshold for <laughs> laughter i mean i will laugh at anything like if people put like 10 black olives on their fingers and have like little <laughs> finger hats i'll laugh at it like i don't my threshold for humor is really low um and i don't mean that in a bad way i just feel like i am looking for the funny yeah. in situations. I really appreciate how diverse a lot of comedy is. And Adam Sandler relies a lot on performance uh -huh. and like affect. Voices. And like, he does yeah, he voices. does a lot of voices. He does a lot of slapstick kind of, but not even like traditional slapstick, just like slapstick light. Like you think it's going to be a huge scene. But he, like, somehow does it in a really subdued way, which is funny in its own right if you, like, have certain expectations. And part of really good comedy is playing with people's expectations. I agree with that. And th that's why I love, I love Bill Murray. I love Bill Murray because I feel like he did infantilize masculinity better when he was younger. And then he also got different kinds of skills that helped him age into his comedy in different ways i mean of the i mean of the male comics that i sort of grew up with my whole life i feel like i have the most affinity to bill murray and the way that he can transform into a lot of different kinds of comic i feel like he's still growing as a comic i feel like adam sandler never did he just cashed out on the goofy infantilized man humor and then never gave us anything that was more interesting to me. There's something interesting about that because I think their humors are so different. Adam Sandler is clearly doing a bit. Yes. You know, whenever he's doing comedy, he's like clearly acting and clearly trying. And Bill Murray has this like effortlessness that is 
incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think he just has like a natural charisma. And he's been able to, through that charisma, and also just like a talent, and also like a warmth. He's not just like a cold, hard asshole. Yeah. He like seems to understand people and like care about them, whether it's like direct or not. And I, I don't know anything about his personal life or his personal relationship, so I can't speak to his quality as a human. But he has this charisma and warmth that makes his comedy seem more effortless in a way that Adam Sandler is like putting on overwrought it's just yeah overwrought. it's hard to watch and you know like Jimmy Fallon does sometimes yeah, I don't can, like doing it that. can be like as a sense of excess too where it's like you're t- trying too hard you know but also it kind of speaks to how much comedy or like jokes can ride on someone's personality or, like, the fact that they have privilege or they're speaking from a certain standpoint. Yeah. And, like, one person can say a joke and you think it's funny and another person can say a joke. Depending on your relative relationship with them or their status or your perception of their status, different jokes can, or the same joke, can read in different ways. Yeah, I think, you know, I think about the longevity of Saturday Night Live and what... I have learned from that because I've seen so much of it. It was a fixture in my childhood and it's like the thing you could stay up on Saturday night to watch. And the thing that I love about Saturday Night Live is I love improv. I love improv because I like high risk and almost all of them came from improv places. And I love that they crack each other up, that they come in with relationships. So, I th- so even though I can't stand Adam Sandler, watching him and David Spade and Chris Farley work together is magical because they were just so in love with each other and they were just so down for the win. They just wanted the laugh so badly that they were willing to constantly one-up each other to get it. That's something I find really very compelling to watch, that sort of collaborative part. You know, Second City is all about that. Upright Citizens Brigade is about that. That thing that so many of the good SNL alums have comes from the collective, you know, humor that's built in those improv troops. And I love that very much. Where, you know, in my case, I feel like the humor that I do is completely unitary (laughs) it's just like me transforming individual moments i very rarely especially when i'm doing political humor in various settings i don't have anybody to collaborate with that way and i wish i did i wish i worked with people who were more invested in humor as a vector of knowledge it's hard though because a lot of humor rests on taking risks yeah like you talked about earlier totally and a lot of it rests on like being vulnerable yeah and you know when a joke doesn't land you're your a subject yeah <laughs> you are totally. i work as a comedian and i say i work as a comedian i like it's an alternative source of income for me yeah um so i've seen a lot of people criticizing my comedy people criticizing other comedians comedy I mean, even if you are actually very good, you you know, like Adam Sandler is, I a would great say, comedian. a great comedian. I agree. And we just, uh-huh. we're like, we don't, you know, prefer his style of comedy. And I hear that a lot. I, Amy Schumer came to Tulsa yeah. recently. I think she is fabulous. 
And a lot of the people in the local comedy community that I work with regularly were like, they were upset because a lot of people were like, finally a real comedian's coming to Tulsa. And the local comedians were all like, she's not a real comedian. And she's like a poser, but like really she worked hard for years to like, and I mean, of course, a lot of people work hard for years and never gain like the notoriety that Amy Schumer has gained. So I understand like there's a certain jealousy. Yeah. But I don't quite understand where people are being vulnerable. They're writing jokes. They're sharing their sense of humor. And it's just the thing where they're like, they're not funny at all. It's like, really? You don't think they're funny at all? Oh, yeah. That's ungenerous. I don't understand that. And I I hear it a lot about Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry Seinfeld's interesting to me because I don't think he's a very singular comic, but he doesn't perform with a lot of affect. Yes. His delivery is so straightforward, and it's all based on his writing. He delivers jokes with very little performance. I think he's a great comic because he doesn't do a lot of performance with his jokes. Everything that's funny about his jokes is about how well they're written. Yeah. And it's very little about his personality. And he's actually not entirely likable as a person. Totally and if you watch, <laughs> If you watch, like, interviews with him or you watch his show, like, comedians getting in cars getting coffee or whatever where he's like obsessed with cars and it's like a total circle jerk <laughs> he comes across as like i would never spend time with jerry seinfeld right yeah that's that a weird thing to me is like a lot of how funny you think people are rests on you know how charismatic they are and a lot of that rests on privilege privilege yeah, totally. and that's why like most famous comedians are white men because <laughs> they have, like, the social privilege to be charismatic. Yeah. And they have the comfort and status and wealth and all of these other factors to not only, like, do comedy. I have done comedy for three years and I've been in varying states of employment. And it is so much harder for me to write jokes working 60 hours a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, like... A mentally and physically demanding job than it was when I was working 40 hours a week at a desk job. That wasn't entirely easy, but you know, I sometimes think about how much your preconceived notions affect what you think is funny. Yeah. Since I write about race and gender, the risks are, I think, even higher for me to be publicly funny. And so I think about Margaret Cho and Aziz Ansari who I think take interesting risks about the politics of race in different ways, but have certainly informed my perspective. And I also think about Conan O'Brien, who thinks about and writes about whiteness with his writing staff in ways that I think are really, they get smarter and smarter. Some of my favorite um, skits of his right now have been with Ice Cube and Kevin Hart, who are good friends and who are hilarious together. Hilarious. And obviously I've loved Ice Cube since I was a little girl. I like, I adore him. My friends call me the Don Mega, sort of have an alternative personality. 
that I perform as a way of thinking about um, black masculinity and hip hop and black masculinity and black power that is almost exclusively, you know, stolen from Ice Cube's own observations about blackness and structural violence. And I think Conan does a really good job of, of engaging his non-white guests in race commentary that points to his own insecurities and vulnerabilities as a white Irish dude that I find extremely compelling and hilarious and useful. And so some of, some of the smartest, you know, bits I think lately that I've seen that I just like collapsed in humor over are actually Conan's show, which I never, ever watch. But, you know, when the, they float around the internet, I'm like, oh my gosh, if it's, yeah. if it's Kevin Hart and Ice Cube and Conan, like I'll watch literally anything that those three dudes do. All the time. I like Conan because he flips between self-deprecating and confidence. Me too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost not even noticeable. It's imperceptible. He just <laughs> flows through different modes of being where he'll, like, deliver a joke and if it doesn't land, he'll just trash himself and then quickly, <laughs> like, make another joke as if... But it's because up. he's good. It's because he's a six-foot-five r- ginger. I mean... There's a ridiculousness about his visage that I think allows him to pivot in those moments that I find extremely charming. When I think about comedians who do race talk poorly, I think about Bill Cosby. And I'm thinking about writing an essay on Bill Cosby because I just, I feel like the field of communication needs to grapple with his interventions in public culture. But I also think that there's part of humor that can be really violent and detrimental and personal and savage. And I feel like Bill Cosby, the reason that people are so pissed about him being this total rapist is because he tried to build an entire persona for himself that was the exact opposite, while you know, in his stand-up, making rape jokes and talking about the women that he drugged and raped. And that is inexcusable to use humor as a cover for social violence, especially because Cosby was such a crossover for white audiences on The Cosby Show and The Cosby Kids. I find him to be completely appalling. I can't even think about his early records anymore. Like the whole, th- his whole oeuvre is just completely wrecked for me because I think he's such an unethical human being. Um, and I, there aren't that many comedians that you can say that about precisely because, as you said, you know, being a comedian means a tremendous amount of raw vulnerability. I mean, comedians have the same problems as a lot of other professions. They, you know, they drink and they drug and they party and stuff. But in terms of like being grossly unethical, it takes a, a tremendous degree of openness to do comedy well. And Cosby, I think, is just, you know, sort of at a, the epitome of how corrupt humor can be really detrimental for black culture. On the other side is Chappelle, who left his show because the intensity of the pressure on Comedy Central to be a certain kind of comedian was just crushing him. And that was a that was a self-care moment that I think is extremely revolutionary and is really uh, a good signal for other comedians about how to think about the kind of boxes that they're being painted into if they find themselves to be successful. It's interesting to think about comedy in that way. Chappelle 
was kind of revulsed by the idea that comedy was a mechanism of capitalism. Yeah, totally. He was being used as a prop. Yeah. As a prop. He He was was a a prop. He was a prop. I think that comedy is used now to promote products or ideas, and it's, like, perceived as authentic. There's something that's read about comedy because it comes from a place of vulnerability a lot of times, but also it can come from a place of power. Oh, yeah. If you make a joke about something, it's like you have a certain position to, like, speak about it. Mm -hmm. So I know, like, a lot of brands now make funny tweets about things and it's perceived as authentic. It's been really useful for them. Fast food has started doing more funny things to appeal to (laughs) their user base, which... And now, like, more and more consumers are millennials or people who are, like, on their phones or on the TVs all the damn time, and they can't pay attention for more than 15 seconds. So it's, like, become a thing where whatever I can do to get attention for a second, it has a lot of value. And a lot of times, telling a joke is more interesting than providing relevant information. I mean, I don't know. For me... Because I want to just provide tremendous amounts of information on everything that I care about. I feel like I recognize that people want the infotainment. And I also feel like they need to be disrupted with the delivery so that they actually hear it. Because people are inundated by so much information. And you're right, by so much co-opted humor or humor as advertisement that I feel like for me, the best meme to describe the, the way that I feel about the way that I perform humor online or in person is the mic drop. It's like a conversation is happening. I insert myself at the right moment with the right timing with a short piece of delivery that flips the script and then I walk away. They're just like little information grenades mm-hmm. that are extremely disruptive and that can be used to reassess subjectivity or standpoint or relationality to an object or our attachments, our unnatural, unhealthy attachments to an object. And I think that the reason that I have gotten as good as I have at that is because I watched a lot of different kinds of comics think about timing and delivery and then the scope. And I don't know. I guess for me, as I think about the relationship between humor and leaning back, I like wedding humor to deep information because I think that those little grenade bombs can can provide the space for people to be forced away from the things that they have unhealthy attachments to where they can reassess their alignment or ideology with you know, a particular notion. And I find that very, very useful because especially as a woman, I feel like I'm surrounded by women who are leaning in and who don't take risks and who don't call out structural violence and who won't risk being disliked to say the things that need to be said. And I feel like since I have that perspective on risk and I'm willing to do it that the best way that I can wield that kind of privilege and power that I have being as educated as I am and knowing as much as I do about the topics that I think and write about is to be able to disrupt you know and jar people 
out of their comfort with the kind of humor that is also ultimately fairly gentle. I think it's interesting because we came to the idea of lean back from a sense of play, play and humor. Yeah, we did. Right? I mean, we both were like kind of confused by lean in initially. And then it became like a funny thing. We were like, for months. It's ridiculous. For months. Yeah. For months, you and I made jokes about how leaning in was entirely about finding more women to be prone in the workplace so that they could be completely exploited by capitalism. For months, we made those jokes. All between, it, privately, publicly, on the internet, and then put it to a hip hop soundtrack. Exactly. Lean so, back. like, this whole project was kind of inspired by creating a sense of humor around something that we found problematic. And so I think that humor also can be like a spark to a lot of people. Maybe if you hear a joke in the first place about something you take seriously, you can be like, oh, actually, that's kind of absurd. You can kind of shift your perception about social relationships and power and uh, expectations. And the idiocy of a multi-billionaire lady giving workplace advice to a bunch of working poor people who are struggling and not even making a living wage. <laughs> yeah. Sad. yeah. I mean, I talk all the time about sad funny, like things that are sad funny at the same time. It's like we should, we're laughing about this, but we're laughing about it because it's sad and horrific. And the only way to manage it is this therapeutic model of humor that you were talking about is to, like, to laugh through it. I feel totally that way about Sheryl Sandberg, that the only way to handle living in a culture with such a tremendous rich poor gap that's aggregated around technology the way that Facebook has has done that kind of exploitation is to completely eviscerate it with humor and revel in its damaging absurdity. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by, or on behalf of, the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.